Hello and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter and it is my pleasure to bring you articles from Time Magazine. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers and no unauthorized use is permitted. Let go this time from the October 23rd issue of Time magazine. We'll start with an article from the World section on page 23. Headline, The Human Toll of Poland's Strict Abortion Laws. This is written by Anna Pamula. Since a 2020 ruling by the county's constitutional tribunal, Poland has had a near total ban on abortion. There have been mass women-led protests ever since. The consequences of the reproductive rights rollback have been dire, as doctors hesitate to take life-saving steps for pregnant with patients. Krzysztof Sawinski still cries every day since his wife Marta, who was five months pregnant, died of sepsis in 2022. He believes doctors waited to act until the fetus's heart had stopped. Janice Kuzarski also lost his partner, Justnaya, to sepsis in the fifth month of a pregnancy. She left behind two boys. With doctors reluctant to intervene, infant mortality rates have also risen. We have seen an increase in infant deaths in the statistics, says Dr. Gisela Jelieska, a gynecologist, Olesnika, who performs many of the few legal abortions that still take place in Poland. A recent patient, six months pregnant, traveled 250 miles to see her. The baby had almost no lung tissue. It would have died immediately or a few hours after birth, Jagielsa says. Because the ruling law and justice party supports the restrictions, many polls looked to the October 15th parliamentary elections to produce change. Others looked to the courts. Attorney Jolanta Budzowski is representing families in criminal negligence cases against doctors in relation to the abortion law. Moving on now to the views section. This is from the society section. Headline, Goodbye Columbus by Robert P. Jones. He is the president and founder of PRRI and the author of The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and The Path to a Shared American Future, from which this story is adapted. To fully understand the deep roots of the toxic blend of ethno-religious identity politics known today as white Christian nationalism, we need to go back at least to 1493, not the year Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue but the year he returned to a hero's welcome in Spain, bringing with him gold, brightly colored parrots, and nearly a dozen captive indigenous people. The return of Columbus also precipitated one of the most fateful theological developments in the history of the Western Christian Church, the creation of what has come to be known as the Doctrine of Discovery. Established in a series of 15th century papal bulls, the church doctrine claims that European civilization and Western Christianity are superior to all other cultures, races, and religions. The doctrine of discovery merged the interests of European imperialism, including the African slave trade, with Christian missionary zeal. While the doctrine has escaped scrutiny by most white scholars and theologians, indigenous people and scholars of color have long been testifying to these Christian roots of white supremacy while dying from and living with their damaging effects. As I've continued my own journey of re-education over the past 10 years, I have come to consider the doctrine of discovery as a kind of Rosetta Stone for understanding the deep structure of the European political and religious worldviews that we have inherited in this country. It furnished the foundational lie that America was 
discovered and enshrined the noble innocence of pioneers in the story we, white Christian Americans, have told about ourselves. Ideas such as Manifest Destiny, America as a City on a Hill, or America as a New Zion, all sprouted from the seed that was planted in 1493. This sense of divine entitlement, of European Christian closeness, has shaped the worldview of most white Americans and thereby influenced key events, policies, and laws throughout American history. The contemporary currency of this worldview is reflected in the telling results of a 2023 Christian Nationalism Survey conducted by PRRI in partnership with the Brookings Institution, which asked, Do you agree or disagree that God intended America to be a new promised land where European Christians could create a society that could be an example to the rest of the world? While nearly only three in ten Americans agreed, majority of Republicans, 52%, and white evangelical Protestants, 56%, affirmed it. Moreover, the survey found that among white Americans today, this belief in America as a divinely ordained white Christian nation, one that has blessed so much brutality in our history, is strongly linked to denials of structural racism, anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-sentiment, anti-Semitism, anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment, support for patriarchal gender roles, and even support for political violence. Is America a divinely ordained promised land for European Christians, or is America a pluralistic democracy where all stand on equal footing as citizens? Most Americans embrace the latter vision. But a desperate, defensive, mostly white Christian minority continue to cling to the former, lately in the form of Trumpism and the Make America Great Again movement. It was reflected in the prayers and religious symbols participants carried at the U.S. Capitol insurrection on January 6, 2021, and it has become central to the trajectory of the contemporary Republican Party, two-thirds of whom identify as white and Christian. The contemporary white Christian nationalist movement flows directly from a cultural stream that has run through this continent for five centuries. In many ways, this truth has always been glaringly apparent. But for those of us who are white and Christian, our precarious position has historically required that we remain vigilantly ignorant of our own origin story, while demanding the acquiescence of others. Fragmented narratives demarcate America's Indian problem and Negro problem as distant islands, neither visible from the shores of the other. But if we do the hard work of pushing up river, we find at the headwaters the white Christian problem. We need a moral imagination that is not amnesiac, one that will hold on to the memory of the systemic injustices that have accrued to black and indigenous people and their forebears. We white Christians no longer represent the majority of Americans. We are no longer capable of setting the nation's course by sheer cultural and political dominance. But there are still more of us, more than enough of us, to derail the future of democracy in America. Next article is from the Risk Report by Ian Bremmer. Headline, how to weigh the risks of a crisis over Taiwan. In January, Taiwan will hold a presidential election. China's leaders hope former new Taipei city mayor Ho Yue, candidate of the Kuomintang opposition party, will win the job. But the smart money is on current Vice President William Lai, 
who represents the incumbent Democratic Progressive Party. Lai and his party favor a tougher approach to Beijing. If Lai wins, Beijing will become much more confrontational in the coming months. A Chinese invasion of Taiwan remains highly unlikely, but a deterioration in relations is bad news for both sides. For now, Beijing is wielding both sticks and carrots to influence Taiwan's voters. China's navy recently conducted its largest ever military exercises in the Western Pacific. But Beijing has also announced a plan to develop China's Fujian province into a demonstration zone for integrated economic development with Taiwan. This good cop, bad cop strategy probably won't work. Recent polling suggests that about three-quarters of Taiwan's 24 million people now consider themselves Taiwanese rather than Chinese, whatever their family history. A sharp jump over the past 10 years. Some of that trend is likely the natural product of generational change. But China's crackdown on the democracy rights movement in Hong Kong in 2020 has played a role in that shift also. Meanwhile, Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party leaders are looking beyond the election toward the more threatening approach from China. Their latest pushback comes in the form of a new defense report they hope will make China think harder about a future invasion. On September 12th, Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense released its National Defense Report for 2023 which details the lessons Taiwan has learned from Russia's war on Ukraine. In particular, the report calls for bolstering Taiwan's asymmetric warfare capabilities, including the acquisition of mobile, cost-effective, portable, and AI-enabled weapons and equipment. China has also learned lessons from the war in Ukraine. Its leaders recognize that an enemy fighting for its land can make territorial gain prohibitively expensive for the invader, and that Western powers are more likely to align than to divide in the face of naked military aggression. It should also be clear, for now, that Beijing badly needs to focus its current attention and resources on domestic challenges. Over the longer term, China's President Xi Jinping remains determined to reincorporate Taiwan into China by any means necessary. And he'll respond forcefully to any moves he considers foreign interference in this mission. But Beijing also understands that Washington has domestic challenges too and will not welcome any pro-independence push by anyone in Taiwan for the foreseeable future. That gives Beijing time to wait for better conditions for decisive action against the island's autonomy. Moving on to the view inbox, the section on health matters by Haley Weiss, the health and science reporter. Depending on whom you ask, Oregon and Washington have been either reckless or trailblazing. In 2021, both states decriminalized possession of all drugs, a highly experimental move amid a growing opiate crisis in the Pacific Northwest. Because no one clear metric captures the dangers of drugs, measuring the impact of these bills isn't so simple. Residents of both states, particularly in major cities like Seattle and Portland, have noticed dramatic increases in visible drug activity since the bills took effect. Quality of life challenges that have been well documented by local and national news outlets. Washington's decriminalization measure has since rolled back. A pair of new studies, however, suggest that by other metrics in their first year, the measures may have begun to work as intended. According to an analysis by a team at New York University, neither bill caused any change in the already increasing number of fatal overdoses in each state. And 
promisingly, the decrease in arrests for drug possession led to no increase in arrests for violent crimes. There's always the hope that states function as laboratories of democracy. And when one state does something that makes sense and seems to work, that other states will adopt it, says Corey Davis, an assistant clinical professor at NYU's Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy and a co-lead author on the papers. Arrests went way down. Overdoses didn't change. To me, that's an improvement over the previously existing systems. Perhaps, advocates suggest, Oregon's experiment just needs a little more time to breathe. All right, the next article is titled The D.C. Brief by Philip Elliott. As House Republicans convened their first hearing of an impeachment inquiry nominally against President Joe Biden, it was pretty obvious that their program was designed to agitate partisans, not persuade Americans. In fact, House Oversight Chairman James Comer all but confirmed as much during that September 27th session. We want to present evidence, the Kentucky Republican said as the day began. Shot back Representative Jamie Raskin, a Maryland Democrat who was a leading voice during both of the impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. What evidence? There is no evidence. There are no facts. Then Comer, perhaps not fully appreciating that he sounded like he was conceding the facts in this anti-bitten probe matter less than their packaging, responded, Just sit back and let the American people see the hearing. Welcome to at least the next year of Congress, where how things look matters more than what they are. The first session offered no new evidence, just innuendo and character indictments. There is no sign that will change. To be clear, First son, Hunter Biden, may well have been involved in some dodgy deals that bordered on at least perceived criminality. Certainly, there were some serious lapses in judgment, as he banked on his family's name. Yet, even the three witnesses invited by the Republican majority seemed dubious that the oversight team had the goods. Sham or not, though, this effort is here and Republicans are going to use it to hammer Biden and fellow Democrats heading into a contentious and uncertain election year. Any serious impeachment investigation or inquiry relies on first-hand sworn testimony of witnesses to high crimes and misdemeanors, said Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. Today, the Republican majority has called three witnesses to make their case. She then asked each of the three witnesses a version of the same question. Are you presenting any first-hand witness accounts of crimes committed by the President of the United States? The answer, of course, was negative. Not that it really mattered in Washington. Moving on now to Time 100 Voices. This is from the Tech World. It's on page 30. And it is headlined, Ukraine Shows How Drones Are Changing Warfare. This is by Eric Schmidt and Will Roper. Schmidt is the co-founder of Schmidt Futures. Roper is a former assistant secretary of the Air Force, now serving on the Pentagon's Innovation Board and a distinguished professor at Georgia Tech. War spurs innovation. Observing life and death on Ukraine's battlefield, it's evident to us that modern warfare now transforms at startup speeds. This battlefield, interwoven with World War I-style trenches and a burgeoning fleet of adapted commercial drones, is tied together by everyday internet technology. The same software used by players to synchronize video game tactics now does so in a scenario with no pause or 
reset button. This meshing of century-old tactics with state-of-the-art hobbyist tech overlaid with the brutality of war paints a harrowing portrait. We saw it in the eyes and streaming video feeds of the brave Ukrainian units hosting us on a front line amid their former homes and businesses now serving as operation centers. Ground troops with drones circling overhead know they are constantly under the watchful eyes of pilots a few kilometers away. Those pilots know they are potentially in crosshairs watching back. This feeling of exposure and lethal voyeurism is everywhere in Ukraine. Behind this front, commanders work in bunkers with internet connectivity that gives Ukraine's a gamer's combat pace and the advantage of startup-like iteration. But during our visit this summer, it appeared this advantage was waning. Russia had adapted to Western weapons and Ukrainian techniques. Improved jamming and air defenses were increasingly grounding air power, putting more and more soldiers in the mud on a gridlocked front. For Ukraine, a breakthrough could lie in transforming their nascent drone startup ecosystem. Over 200 companies, many with affiliated combat units, into a continuously evolving software platform. As Russia showcases advancements like the Orlan 10 and Lancet drones, S-14 air defenses, and enhanced electronic warfare, all in seemingly inexhaustible quantities, Ukraine's response could be even faster evolving software that internetizes the battlefield with autonomy, AI, and ad hoc networking. Rather than new hardware, new software, and some clever tactics, can hold the innovation high ground. Traditional militaries with their slow procurement systems have no playbook for this, but software startups do. Ukraine must win a startup war that constantly brings new systems and new software to the battlefield. At the heart of this strategy lies the drone, not just as an airborne device, but also as a potent software platform. Imagine drones that never miss, drones that never operate in isolation, drones with unbreakable communication lines, and drones that in swarms always prevail. All possible with software and changeable all the time. Such a strategy would redefine warfare tactics by redefining its economics. En masse, low-cost drones may incapacitate million-dollar tanks or ships, creating a cost exchange ratio that can bankrupt Russia's military and light Ukraine's path to victory. This cost imposition warfare will render obsolete many traditional military concepts and alter the global security landscape. The rapid, software-driven nature of these systems will also accelerate the onset of AI-powered warfare. This technological leap, fully separating the human attacker from their target, foretells a redefinition of warfare and deterrence, one where mass, low-cost data and algorithms dominate offense, empowering attritable systems that make defense increasingly unaffordable. The specter of a never-ending AI arms race demands new modes of diplomacy to prevent escalatory threats. But progress cannot be stopped. Progress can only be guided. Unlike another autonomous weapon, landmines that kill civilians daily in Ukraine, lethal drones must be locatable, limited in autonomous duration, and overseen by humans. All things software can ensure if guided by convention. As the cycle time of war quickens, 
so must every function supporting it, and so must the functions that deter it, from public debate to international laws and policies. Will the world rise to this challenge? We hope so, just as we hope for victory in Ukraine. Moving on to the health section. In their own words, the unique stress of growing up right now and how young Americans are coping. This was written by Jamie Ducharme. To be a U.S. teenager in 2023 is both the same as it ever was and astoundingly different from even a generation ago. Along with all the classic challenges of growing up, grades, parents, first loves, looms a crop of newer ones. TikTok, gun violence, political division, the whipsaw of COVID-19, and the not-so-slow creep of climate change. The main domains are the same, school, home, family, and peers, says Dr. Asha Patton-Smith, a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Kaiser Permanente in Virginia. But the stressors that emerge within those domains have changed tremendously in a world where the internet and real life have largely blurred into one, with everything from school to social interaction now happening at least partially online and a fire hose of bad news always only a swipe away. This new world has taken a toll on U.S. teenagers if the staggering data on adolescent health are any indication. In 2020, 16% of U.S. kids ages 12 to 17 had anxiety, depression, or both, a roughly 33% increase since 2016, according to an analysis by health policy research group KFF. I believe that stands for the Kaiser Family Foundation. The following year, 42% of U.S. high school students said they felt persistently sad or hopeless. 29% reported experiencing poor mental health. 22% had seriously considered suicide. And 10% had actually attempted suicide, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. These data are sometimes used to argue that kids aren't as tough as they used to be. But kids see it differently. Other generations are telling us that we're a weak generation and we haven't lived through this and that, says 16-year-old Jasmine. But we're in a new world experiencing new things. They haven't experienced half of what we've experienced it's not only big, macro-level societal shifts that are having an effect. CDC data also show that personal traumas like sexual violence, bullying, and social isolation are concerningly common, particularly among teenage girls, teens who do not identify as straight, two groups at particularly high risk for poor mental health. Of course, there's no single or simple explanation for these trends. You know, everybody's different, says 15-year-old LB. It's not just one issue around the world that can exclaim, oh, this is why this person is feeling this. Indeed, mental health issues are as diverse as the young people who experience them. Girls, says 14-year-old Malaya, live with unhealthy body and beauty standards, while boys aren't given as much space to be sad and emotional, says 15-year-old Hosiah. Kids who identify as neither boys nor girls may be caught in a crushing gender binary that prevents self-expression, says 15-year-old Trey. And kids of color bear the tremendous weight of trauma, discrimination, and safety threats says 17-year-old JJ. With such varied experiences, there is no one-size-fits-all cure. The most important thing adults can do is listen to teenagers, says Dr. Anish Dube, 
chair of the American Psychiatric Association's Council on Children, Adolescents, and Their Families. Oftentimes, the folks that are missing from conversation are the folks that are most affected, Dube says. Young people themselves are going to have the answers more than I, as an expert, will. It's all about listening to them. In an effort to do the just that, photojournalist Robin Hammond interviewed dozens of U.S. teenagers from Georgia, Colorado, and the Washington, D.C. area about their mental health, the challenges they've faced, and how they cope. From struggles with gender identity and gun violence to bullying and body image, their words offer windows into the messy world of the U.S. teenager. But their stories also offer hope to other kids growing up in that complex environment. Jack, 15, says he's learned to overcome anxiety by focusing on the present and has found the courage to tell kids who tease him exactly how they make him feel. Go on, have a one conversation and talk to them, he says. It may sound cringe. It may sound like something that you don't really want to do. But you have to trust me from one teenager to another. It helps and it will work. Moving now to, excuse me, I'm turning pages of Time Magazine. All right, let's look at the world of sports. Title, Prime is Money. How Deion Sanders flipped Colorado's fortunes and became the most talked about man in sports. This is written by Sean Gregory in Boulder, Colorado. On an autumn weekend in Boulder, the sports miracle of the season is clearer than the blue Rocky Mountain sky. Whereas for years, the University of Colorado football team delivered Saturday misery, the Buffaloes enjoyed just four winning seasons in the past 20 years and finished one for 11 in 2022. Boulder now may be the hippest, happiest place in America. The Stampede, a Friday night pregame pep rally down Pearl Street, used to feel more like a tiptoe. But on September 29th, the night before Colorado faced off against number eight USC, the restaurants are full and the sidewalks are packed. A handful of little kids even line the rooftop of a trattoria to watch the marching band play. A little before 6 a.m. Mountain Time the next day, hundreds of University of Colorado fans, most wearing white cowboy hats adorned with LED lights, have assembled on Ferrand Field, smack in the middle of campus. Some are students, others are alums and locals, while a significant number have traveled from far afield, never having imagined they'd ever have reason to gaze at those picturesque peaks in the backdrop. Fox Sports' big noon kickoff pregame show won't start for hours, but the revelers are ready. They're here to see Deion Sanders, or Coach Prime, a play on Prime Day, Prime Time, his nickname from his 1980s and 90s heyday, who arrived as head coach in December, radically made over this year's team and turned Colorado into the biggest story in sports. Before kickoff, the sidelines at Colorado Stadium are now the place to be seen. There's rapper DaBaby hyping up the crowd. There are Sanders' friends and fellow football Hall of Famers, Terrell Owens, Warren Sapp, and Michael Irvin. Hey, that's basketball Hall of Famer Kevin Garnett and future baseball Hall of Famer Cece Sabathia and rapper Simba. The VIPs wear a special credential around their necks. Prime passes in the shape of the gold whistle Sanders uses in practice. Boulder County is 1.3% black. Yet, as one sideline spectator observes, the scene feels like black Hollywood. And what's been happening on the field is as spectacular as what's happening off the field. As the Buffaloes charged back against the Trojans, 
slicing a 41-14 third quarter deficit to 48-41 with just under two minutes left, Folsom Field, filled with more than 54,000 roaring fans, felt like the epicenter of sports. Could Sanders' squad, which has already exceeded expectations, stimulated the college football economy and compelled more than 8 million people to watch Colorado beat Colorado State in double overtime after a 2.15 a.m. Eastern time in mid-September? ESPN's highest college football viewership at that hour pull off this monumental comeback? U.S. recovered the late onside kick to clinch the game, but Colorado's charge just added to Coach Prime euphorbia. The atmosphere is electric, man, DeBaby tells me before leaving the field. Look, chuck the NFL game. Right now, this is the most exciting place to be in football. Swifties may disagree, but while the rumored relationship between Taylor Swift and Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey drives headlines and ticket sales, Coach Prime's efforts are much more far-reaching. At Colorado, he has the power to change not only the fate of the team, but also the multi-billion dollar college football industry. His success could open doors for more black head coaches at the highest levels of the college game. A long overdue development, especially given that teams with majority black players help generate, in some cases, north of $100 million in annual revenue for their schools. After decades of coaches protecting players from distractions, Sanders has invited cameras to embed with Colorado for the second season of Amazon's Coach Prime. His embrace of social media exposure for players, they wear their Instagram handles on their practice jerseys, and their recently won right to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness should shake up the sport's stodgy DNA. Plus, after two successful seasons at Jackson State, a historically black college or university, Sanders used the transfer portal, the still newish NCAA mechanism that lets players switch schools without having to sit out a year, to overhaul Colorado's roster. He brought in 57 transfers, while more than 60 Colorado players left for other programs or actually ended their college football careers. In short, he treats college sports at what, as what it really is, a business. CU hired him to win, and win now. And he's doing it his way, with straight talk and unshakable confidence. In the world of college football, there is a certain expectation of how coaches should be and how they should act, says Dwayne The Rock Johnson, a former defensive lineman at the University of Miami who won a national championship in 1991. Prime took that playbook up and threw it out the window. Some of Sanders' methods have proved unpopular. He was criticized for having DeBaby, who has been decried for using homophobic language and has had multiple run-ins with the law, give his team a pep talk about overcoming adversity. He has pushed players out the door. Many people are rooting for his failure. But that word, Sanders insists, is not part of his vocabulary. Love Coach Prime, a ubiquitous presence in ads for Affleck, California Almonds, and KFC, or hate him, you are at least paying attention. We're being unapologetically who we are, Sanders, age 56, tells me in an interview in Boulder the week of the USC game. You can tell by everything that we're accomplishing right now that we're headed in the proper direction at a speed that is undeniably a lot more expeditious than many people would have suspended. Shoot, this is going to be good. It's just like the trailer of a movie you're seeing. 
Just wait until you see the whole darn movie. Sanders patrols his team's morning practices on a golf cart with Prime emblazoned on the front. A Prime bicycle and Prime Segway rest outside his office. Before one session, the team huddles around him. Line, you're going to have a great day. You're going to kick some buck up front, right? Sanders says. Yes, sir, players respond in unison. You're going to protect the quarterback, right? Yes, sir. Defensive line, we're going to get to the quarterback, right? Yes, sir. He drives from station to station to observe and occasionally weigh in. Sanders moves more gingerly these days. Because of blood clots, he had two toes on his left foot amputated in 2021. Get off the field! Garbage! That's horrible, he says to one player who made a mistake. You ran onto the field as if you're about to have a baby in three months, he tells a player who wasn't hustling enough for Coach Prime's liking. Hey guys, that was horrible offensively today. I want you all to know that, Sanders says at the end of a practice. There is not a commitment to excellence whatsoever. You're just going through the darn motions. Sanders eschews profanity, often saying "dern" where a curse word would do. But he reserves his biggest smile of the week for when two of his coaches, defensive coordinator Charles Kelly and defensive tackles coach Sal Sunseri, both of whom left Alabama, the premier program of the past 15 years, to take on this rebuilding project, get into a shouting match that devolves into an exchange of FUs. He appreciates their intensity. At one practice, David Kelly, Colorado's general manager and a longtime Sanders confidant, shows me a text he got from Nike co-founder Phil Knight, who had talked to Sanders before Colorado faced Oregon and Eugene on September 23rd and met with Barack Obama at Nike headquarters a few days later. I greeted him with, You're the second biggest celebrity I've talked to this week, Knight wrote. Little about Sanders' program is typical. Is you working or twerking, reads a sign on Sanders' office door. Working or twerking is one of multiple phrases, including Coach Prime, and it's personal, for which he has filed for trademarks. A conference room houses his sneakers and hats. On Friday afternoon, a woman walks toward his door and asks, Are that many people really in there? Sanders does not allow shoes in his office, and 11 pairs of shoes sit in front of the reception desk. A few minutes later, members of the documentary crew, his manager, Sanders' son, Shiloh, a Colorado safety, Garnett, and fellow Basketball Hall of Famer Paul Pierce file out of Sanders' space. These days, everyone wants time with Prime. Colorado's game against Oregon, a 42-6 blowout victory for the Ducks, drew 10.03 million viewers, making it one of the most watched college football games of the year. The school's online team store merchandise sales are up 892% year-to-date over 2022. Colorado Chancellor Philip DiStefano says out-of-state applications have climbed 40%. It's transformational, he says. Sanders is even developing a half-hour comedy with Kevin Hart's media company based on his journey and billed as Entourage meets the gridiron. Sanders' team tells time exclusively. People are drawn to hope, man, says Sanders. Shoot, we're David. We ain't got but a couple of stones here. We're playing against Goliath every week. We were 1 to 11. And now you're tripping about us? We're people. We're pulling people in, man. That's just want a chance to be seen, to be heard, to be noticed. The swing set of life every once in a while and say, Whee! 
one could dismiss these words as self-serving, if Santers weren't on to something. Because it's not just celebrities who have flocked to town to pay homage to Sanders. The Rock, Lil Wayne, Offset, and Key Glock have also made appearances since the start of the season. Fan after fan in Boulder mentions Coach Prime's inspiration. At the Colorado team store, Veronica Jones, a retired law enforcement officer from Charlotte, North Carolina, wearing gold-rimmed, fierce but fabulous glasses, and a t-shirt for the HBCU Johnson C. Smith University, fished for prime gear in the same area as a guy who looked like a member of ZZ Top. Her husband, Will Jones, noted that most of the black passengers on their flight to Denver were going to cheer on Sanders. It was like a family reunion, he says. Kedrick Mallory made the trip from Atlanta with friends and family, including his one-year-old son. I'm here to support the movement, says Mallory, a real estate broker. In my 42 years of living, I never thought of coming to Colorado. My son could have stayed home with his grandmother, but I want him to be able to say, when I was 16 months, I witnessed the prime effect. When Sanders was rocking Jerry Curls and gold chains in the late 1980s, Neon Dion was in another nickname back then. Few would have pegged him for a major college football coach, provider of hope, and leader of men. His talent was indisputable, but his swagger rubbed many the wrong way. Everybody occupies two persons in their natural being, being, says Sanders now. People wish they could develop that other person a lot more. That other person says the things they want to say and does the things they want to do. Prime has been that cat. And I developed that cat a long time ago. Sanders grew up in Fort Myers, Florida, where his mother worked around the clock to support him. A two-time All-American at Florida State, Sanders won the Jim Thorpe Award given to the top defensive back in the country in 1988. Both the Atlanta Falcons and the New York Yankees drafted him. During a 1990s Yankees-Chicago White Sox game in the Bronx, Sanders got into a verbal exchange with White Sox catcher Carlton Fisk, who took exception to Sanders failing to run out a pop-out. Contemporaneous news reports says Sanders drew dollar signs in the batter's box dirt. Fisk seconded that account over the years. The exchange contributed to Sanders' image as an arrogant heel. But Sanders, he insists, he drew no dollar signs, only markings to help position his feet. Carlton Fisk lied, he said. Sir, with all due respect, I would never do such a thing. Why would I lie about something like that, Fisk says. Check the tape. Regardless, Sanders rocketed to 1990s stardom. He made a cameo in MC Hammer's Too Legit to Quit video. He won back-to-back Super Bowls after the 1994 and 1995 seasons with the San Francisco 49ers and Dallas Cowboys, respectively. Years before Colorado, Sanders was creating culture. Dwayne Johnson was watching closely during those years. Over Zoom, I ask him about Sanders' influence on his own career, and he shows me goosebumps on his forearm. No one has ever asked me that, he says. So much of the character and the entity of The Rock came from Prime. One of the characteristics of the character of The Rock was talking in the third person. Dion would say certain things in third person. I always found that so cool because he walked the walk. After his NFL career ended in 2005, Sanders became a TV analyst and began coaching on the youth and high school levels when two of his children, who now play for Colorado, 
Safety Shiloh, age 23, and quarterback Shadur, age 22, were kids. In 2019, Sanders told his manager and business partner, Constance Schwartz Marini, CEO of FMAC Entertainment, that he might reach out to his alma mater about helping with recruiting. I said, why don't you just be a head coach at college then? She says, I'm not stupid. I understand there's a huge difference between coaching youth in high school and jumping into the collegiate level. But while the real estate may change, the methods have not. He interviewed at Florida State and Arkansas, but without any college experience, he couldn't get those jobs. Jackson State, which plays a level below major programs like Colorado in the football championship subdivision, took a chance on him. Star power allowed Sanders to skip the typical assistance route. It didn't matter. He finished 27-6, winning a pair of Southwestern Athletic Conference championships. I hate when people say dumb stuff like that. He didn't pay his dues, says former Cowboy teammate Michael Irwin. Okay, so how many of you head coaches in college right now started at the Little League level? If I'm going to be a great CEO one day, I want to start in the mailroom so I can learn every piece of the job along the way. Sanders caught the attention of the big schools. As Colorado struggled last season, its athletic director, Rick George, started texting him pictures of Folsom Field's Mountain View. When he met with Sanders in mid-November at Sanders' home in Canton, Mississippi, Sanders surprised him with a written assessment of every Colorado player. Sanders took the job without even visiting Boulder. You choose this naked and not ashamed, he says. He took heat on the way out of Jackson. Sanders had helped draw much-needed attention resources to a historically black college university. So his exit, for some, felt like a betrayal. A commentator said on CNN that he sold a dream and then walked out on the dream. To Sanders, however, his work in Jackson was done. It wasn't like we just abandoned it, he said. What more could I do? During his first meeting with Colorado's holdover players in December, Sanders, who signed a five-year deal worth $29.5 million, was brutally honest about his intentions. Those of you who we don't run off, we're going to try to make you quit, he said in a speech broadcast on social media. Sanders acknowledges that come season's end, some of his players will surely hit the transfer portal with opportunities to play, to earn playing time, and cash elsewhere. Churn is now part of college football. While players don't get paid by their universities, as of July 2021, NCAA athletes can earn income through third-party sponsors and boosters. Shadur, for example, has deals with Gatorade, Beats by Dree, and Tops, among others. According to ON3.com, he has a $4.8 million NIL valuation, second only to Bronny James, LeBron's son. Colorado two-way player Travis Hunter also ranks in the top 10. They want to be treated like pros, but you've got to understand now there's scrutiny like the pros said sanders there's cuts there's dissatisfaction so you can't have a pity party and want it both ways well i'm still a kid he says in a baby voice no no you've got a mercedes benz parked outside after oregon humbled colorado many celebrated coach prime comeuppance which felt a bit odd given how recently the buffs were 1-11. to Don't Americans root for the underdogs? I asked Sanders to explain this one afternoon as we sit in the Colorado recruiting lounge.
a spacious area overlooking the football field designed to impress prospects. His Belgian Malinois gunner watches from a cage by the window, marking the first time a college coach's dog has listened in on one of my interviews. You know why, says Sanders? Everybody knows why. Nobody will say it. We put the cards on the table. Does he sense a resistance to a blackhead coach who's known to break protocol? If somebody has on a shirt that has wrinkles on it, I'm going to say, man, is your iron okay? Says Sanders. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. I'm too old to play games. I'm not one to sit up here and wave the racial flag because I've been given some tremendous opportunities. But the statistics, just 10% of top division one head coaches are black, makes it hard to argue that racism does not persist in the sport. We can play, but we can't coach, says Sanders. 70% of us can be in the locker room, but we can't lead ourselves. It doesn't add up. Sanders vows to fix this discrepancy. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time and a season for every activity under the sun, he says. I believe it's time that we make those strides. Opponents are taking shots at Sanders, too. He didn't appreciate comments from Colorado State coach Jay Norvell, who before the CU-CSU game said, when I talk of grown-ups, I take my hat off and my glasses off, a reference to Coach Prime's sartorical choices. Sanders' sunglasses collaboration with Blenders then sold $1.5 million in pre-orders in one day. Oregon coach Dan Lanning told his team in the pregame locker room that they're fighting for clicks. We are fighting for wins. You've got to understand where that comes from, said Sanders. That comes from something that's deep down inside of him, that the pressure of that moment forced it out. He couldn't hide. Successful people and confident people don't do that, Sanders notes. He hasn't initiated spats with other coaches. Putting you down doesn't lift me up, he says. We're not on the seesaw of life. I mentioned that Shiloh was caught on a film cursing at Ducks players before the game. Shiloh is Shiloh, Sanders says. Show is, Shiloh has been like that since he was a kid. Shiloh doesn't really start it. He finishes it. I'm pretty sure he was provoked in some kind of way. For his part, Shiloh insists he trash-talks his own teammates, including his brother. They provoked me by just being there, he says of Oregon. They may just look at you, and you just want to slap them. An Oregon spokesperson designed, declined to comment. The comeback against USC offered a glimpse of the Buffs' potential. If Colorado plays as strong as it did against a top 10 team for a full game, instead of just half, it could contend in year one of the Coach Prime's era. After the game, players bowed their heads as a Sanders friend led the team in prayer. Lord, this is a day of res resurrection. Thank you that you got the bitter taste of last week out of our mouths. Sanders told his team he loved everyone in the room, players, coaches, all of them. In a quiet moment after the uplifting loss, I asked Sanders what America could learn from it. Everything about it is designed and built to go forward, he said. I've never been to a rock or an idle person. I've always been a mover and a shaker, a wave maker and a go-getter. He shares one more message before heading back, back to the...
recruiting lounge. We're coming, Candor says. You could come. You should really come. We're coming, Sanders says. You've got to be crazy if you can't see that. We are coming. And that ends our coverage of Time Magazine for this week. You have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.